on his way home as he had seamlessly countless times before, tired from a long day of chores from the work that he had been committed to. He was still hungry and holding on to his pail, he opened the lid, excited to find that there was still some left over from lunch. Distracted by the food in his pail, as he was making his way home, he began to close the lid, calculating how much further he had in his journey when out of the corner of his eye, off in the distance, at the bottom of the hillside, was a crowd of people that began to gather and they were coming from, from all over the place. He had taken this same road to and from his job every day. For years, as he was growing up, and he'd never seen anything quite like that before. Curious, he began to, to make his way toward the, the base of the mountain ever so quickly, yet cautiously, confused by what was going on. And then he was reminded that this week was a, a special week. It was a, a holy week. It was a week of celebration as the, uh, the festival of the Passover that the Jewish people would celebrate was about to take place. And he knew that people, pilgrims, were coming from all over the place. But he, he still was curious to why there were so many people gathered here and not in the holy city of Jerusalem. Why were they there at the bottom of this mountain? And so he began to make his way all the more close to the destination that he now had in mind, no longer home, but the bottom of this mountain with these people. As he got there, the crowd had grown. In a town of 3,000, there was at least 10 times that and he realized that off in the distance, up on the side of the hill was this man sitting down. He appeared to be a teacher. And there with him were about a dozen men that were standing, listening to what this, this teacher was talking about. He still couldn't hear. There was too much noise in the crowd. And he was at the back of this massive audience, clinching to his pale and holding his duffel bag, he began to crawl through this massive crowd toward the front so that he could get a, a better sight of seeing and a better earshot of hearing. And he made his way past men and past women. He, he made his way past old people and past young people. This, this boy made his way past the Jewish people and past Gentile people. He made his way past those who had come to celebrate this amazing festival and past people who seemed to care less about this religious celebration. Not to, be, not to be distracted from his goal in mind, he continued his way through the crowd and as he crawled to the very front of the, the crowd, he could see on the faces but he could not hear with the voices that there was a look of concern Looking around, he began to listen in as he's eavesdropping on the conversations. There's something that they're talking about, something to do with food, something to do with these people being hungry. Clinching ever so tightly to his 
to his pail, the one that he had taken with him to work that day, the one that he had just examined minutes before, realizing that there was some leftovers from lunch, this man began to descend from the side of the mountain closer and closer with each step to where the boy found himself at the beginning, at the front of the line. What do you have in that pail? The man asked him with an assurance, a confidence. And the boy was, was struck with fear, not sure how he should respond, knowing that this is what he had. He didn't come from wealth. There was nothing opulent in his meager offerings, and it was something he was excited about. He had worked all day long. He began to run through a scenario of options, of things that he could tell this man. But he realized in that moment is the crowd now turned their attentions to him that an answer was necessary, and he chose in that moment to tell them, I've got five barley crackers and two fish, sir. This man that had approached him with such confidence would turn in front of the masses and would respond to his teacher. The boy, the boy has five barley crackers and two fish, but how is that enough to feed the masses? That's where the boy found himself in the middle of a moment that he could have never imagined, that's where we find ourselves today. That is the landscape that we're going to be learning from today. On the side of the Golan Heights, where this mountainside will serve as a natural amphitheater for this teacher and his 12 men who will present a moment unlike any there would ever imagine. And it will literally begin to change the landscape of the culture around them. And I pray with every fiber of my being that as we receive from the word of the the Lord today, that it will begin to change the cultural landscape of our hearts. Father, I pray today that the words of my mouth And that the meditations of our hearts would be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. As your word goes out, may it not return void. Use me as a vessel. I pray that I would decrease so that you would increase all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. I would love to invite you to grab your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, a little more than halfway through your Bible. It's a collection of names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 6 is where we find ourselves today in the fourth sign or the fourth miracle. Pastor Russell already explained to you last week in his message and again today as he was sharing about all of the exciting things going on at our church that we find ourselves in the middle of a series that we have entitled Sign. 
signs, and signs is really one-third of a collection of messages or series that we're going to give in what we are subtitling Jesus through John, where we're learning about the person of Jesus through the gospel of John. And John writes his gospel in a really unique manner. It is the same, yet it is different than that of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of the things that John does that he establishes from the very beginning is the purpose of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he'll go on at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30, to talk about the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that all of these things would take place as an affirmation, as a confirmation, as a demonstration of the power and the authority in the person of Jesus. And so we, in this series, Signs, are looking at seven miracles, seven things that John records in his gospel, all that point to the person of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and why that matters to us and how that changes our lives. Today, in John chapter 6, we're going to study 15 verses together. And it's a story that many of you who have grown up in church probably heard. Some of you who are old enough may have even had the privilege of having flannel graph to help illustrate this point where there was a felt board on the wall and there would have been a, a young boy cut out with a white robe and there in his basket, this, this weaved basket would have been five loaves of bread and two fish. It's a common story for those who come up in faith. But I don't want to pretend for a moment that every one of us knows that commonplace story in Christianity. The problem that with people who, who, like myself, who have come up in the faith over the last 25 years that know the story, we can dismiss it not because it's not important, but because we've heard it so many times and it becomes repetitious to us and it can lose, it can lose some of the luster of the miracle. And I don't want that to be the, the case for us today. So I would invite you into the scene. I would invite you into the setting. I would invite you into the canvas. There at the bottom of this mountainside, the Golan Heights region at the far northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee, sitting in the springtime where there's this luscious grass that is beginning to grow up in the valleys around the bottom of this mountain, Jesus comes with his disciples and he, he begins to teach. Let's check this out together. We're going to read 15 verses together. We're going to stop and we're going to examine each one of these verses as we go. Beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. After this is not a direct correlation to some happening or some event. What it is, is an example by John that there has been some time that has passed between events. Some people, some theologians, some commentaries would argue that that would be six months. Others might argue that that's a year. What's important to note is that during that time frame, whether six months or a year, however long that gap of time in John's recording is, does not mean that Jesus' ministry was silent. It does not mean that it was quiet. It does not mean that it was null and void. In fact, John 20, verse 30 and 31, John says, these miracles and many more happened. In fact, too many for us to even record. Jesus 
His ministry is growing. Jesus, the miracles are growing. He is doing three things. He is preaching, he is teaching, and he is healing. And as he preaches and teaches and heals, he is growing in notoriety. He is growing in infamy. He is growing as a person, as a teacher, as a rabbi, as a zealot, as a lunatic. There are all kinds of opinions that are beginning to formulate around the person of Jesus. And so there's a period of time that takes place where John records that Jesus has now crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. So from where he was before, he is now on the farthest northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. And I love that John points out a small detail here. And if we're not careful, we would sweep right over this. But look at, look at the attention to detail that John paints for us and the care that Jesus takes for the people. It says, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Why is that important? Well, Tiberias is a, is a city in Rome, and it's named after Tiberius Caesar. The Sea of Galilee is what is known throughout the region of, of Galilee, throughout Asia Minor. But in Rome at that time, it was also given a, a term or a name, uh, the Sea of Tiberius, in honor or recognition of Tiberius and Caesar. So now, this is a play culturally to both Jews and Gentiles, to the haves and the have-nots. What John is saying, without saying it, is that everyone knew where this was. Everyone was familiar with this community. And he's setting a context here that will paint part of the landscape for us in this story. In verse 2, he says, A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. I love that John takes time to point out the motivation. He points out the motivation for why people are following Jesus. All of the guesswork has been removed. These men and women and children are following Jesus because of the possibilities of what they might do for him. They've heard about it. They've seen it in some cases. They've wondered in most cases. And they're following Jesus because he is better than Barnum and Bailey Circus. Because he is going to do the miraculous, the amazing, the unforeseen, the unforetold. He is going to do things that no one like has ever done before. John points out the motivation, which should lead us to pause for a moment and question our motivation. What is our motivation for following Jesus? Let me make it really personal. Why are you a follower of Jesus? Is it because of the person of Jesus or because of the possibilities that he might have in store for you? But what if it's both? Why are you following Jesus? I also, I also want to point something out that is really crucial to this. Something that we need to decipher for ourselves. In verse 2, it says, a crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. One of the things that I often wonder is, are we a part of the crowd or are we a follower of Christ? There are far too many churches that are full of crowd members and not enough that are full of Christ followers. There are people who come to churches all across the globe each and every week because of what's in it for them, because of what people are saying about that pastor or that church or that community, the kind of music that they have, the kind of ministries that they have going on. And it's creating this 
intrinsic desire for them to find out more. They're a part of the crowd. They're there, maybe just curious. They're onlookers. They're wondering what this is all about. What would happen if we really examined our hearts and answered this question? Are we just a part of the crowd? Don't pretend for a moment that just because you show up and you're a part of the crowd means that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. The difference is surrender. The hallmark is obedience. Anybody can be a part of the crowd, but Jesus himself said very few will follow Christ. John points out the motivation, and he also delineates the difference between the crowd and the followers of Christ. In verse 3 it says, Then Jesus climbed a hill, and he sat down with his disciples around him. A couple of things to know about this culturally. Number one, this was very commonplace for a, a rabbi to sit down while his disciples or his followers stood while he taught. So next week, I'm going to have a chair, I'm going to sit, and you're going to stand for 45 minutes. No? The second thing, and culturally, and it's just, it's just a minor detail, but we need to understand why Jesus would always go up on the side of a mountain. Well, at the bottom of a, of a hillside like that, with Jesus up on the hillside, it created a natural amphitheater, and it also allowed for more people to gather. Did you know that in that region, the region of Galilee, near Bethsaida, where Jesus is teaching at that time, even the intentionally built amphitheaters could only hold up to a percentage of 3,000 people, three, 400 people max. These towns and villages were about 3,000 people in total. There was nothing around that had the capacity that would allow for Jesus to teach a large crowd. And we're going to find out just how large this crowd was as we continue in this story. So Jesus, seeing the large crowd, goes up on the mountainside and he sits down along with his disciples so that more people can gather at the bottom to hear this radical message and so that he could be heard. Verse 4, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. This lets us know that during this celebration, any man, woman, or child that was able-bodied and within a reasonable distance was expected to make a pilgrimage from their home and into the holy city to celebrate this Passover. Some argue that hundreds of thousands of people would come to be a part of this celebration. Verse 5 says that Jesus soon saw a crowd, a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Now, turning to Philip, and he asked, where can we buy bread to, fight, to feed all of these people? There's a couple of things here that I absolutely love. Jesus recognizes that there are people coming to him to find him, to search him out, to hear from him, and maybe even be healed by him. So Jesus, culturally then, realizing that they're coming for him, receives them as his guests. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute as well. Jesus takes the responsibility. He finds it incumbent upon himself to care for those that are coming to him. Now, why would he turn to Philip and ask Philip, if there was enough food or where they could find enough food to feed these people. A couple of things to keep in mind. It's possible that these people were not prepared for this, this, little, uh, this little distraction, this little 
I almost liken it to a Chevy Chase vacation where they're going to go and, and they have a destination, but they're going to stop along the way and take a picture. All right, here we go. On to the next destination. They weren't prepared necessarily to stop and to see Jesus, so they didn't come prepared with enough food. They were tired from the journey. Whatever the case may be, Jesus taking it upon himself, a responsibility to care for his guests, the people that have come searching him out. He looks to Philip because Philip is from that region. Earlier, when you learn about Jesus calling his disciples, you find out that that Philip comes from a community of Bethsaida, which is about seven to nine miles from the Golan Heights, where they're at now. So if anyone amongst the disciples would know where to find food, it would be Philip. The other, the other problem that they have, again, I want to I help you understand that there's only towns and villages that are able to facilitate about 3,000 people. There's not a, a grocery store. Uh, there's not a, a convenience store where they could go, and there's not a bakery where they could just pick up some supplies. They relied each and every day on providing the amount necessary to feed those in that context, in that community. So he asks Philip, but he asks Philip for more than one reason. He asks him also as a test, where can we buy some food to feed all these people? Verse 6, he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. I love that. I want, I want you to hold on to that for just a second. Verse 6. He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. So this had nothing to do. This was a, this was a rhetorical ask. He was about to do Philip a favor. He was about to help Philip grow in his faith. He was about to help Philip see the unforeseen and do the unbelievable. Verse 7. Philip doing what any of us would do. Self-reliant, self-dependent, feeling a gross responsibility upon his own shoulders, knowing that this is his context, this is his community, this is his neck of the woods, these are his people. Philip begins to consider all of the resources that he's aware of. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. And a more literal translation, like the English Standard Version or the original language of the Bible, there's a dollar amount that is given in association with Philip's response. And that dollar amount is 200 denarii. A denarii is worth a day's wages. What he's literally saying is, even if we worked for eight months, eight months' salary, and it wasn't dedicated to anything else, we didn't have to pay a mortgage with it, we didn't have to worry about our car payments. There was no grocery budget. We weren't going to go and spend money at Chipotle. Every dollar we had was dedicated to savings for an event like this. Even if we had eight months of income socked away in the bank, this still wouldn't even scratch the surface to feeding all of these people who are gathered here today. It's insurmountable is what he's saying. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And how often do we look at our own lives when we face circumstances that are so much bigger than us and we look to self-dependence and we look to self-reliance and we look to self-awareness and we look to what we can do to mitigate or to overcome the circumstances in front of us when all the time, all the while, Jesus is wanting us to look to him. Verse 8. I love Andrew. 
Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? There's just a couple of things here that I think I would be remiss if I didn't share. First of all, when we think of loaves, we think of a large or a whole piece of bread, or not piece, but a, 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 a loaf of bread. A, a barley loaf was actually what you and I today would consider a small cracker, number one. Number two, barley was what the poor people would eat. Wheat were those who were better off. If you remember, all the way back to week one of this new series signs that we started, we talked about the wedding in Cana and how Jesus will use the most unlikely of circumstances to do the miraculous. He'll use the most unlikely of people to participate in his miracles. And in that story, Jesus uses jars that are used to wash the impurities off of people. These ceremonial cleansing basins to scrub the dirt and the filth both physically and hypothetically and spiritually off of the people. Yet Jesus uses these to create the most miraculous and amazing, the best tasting wine that that community had ever known. Here again, Jesus is going to use something nonsensical that is going to radically transform the landscape of what's in front of him. He didn't go to the elaborate. He didn't turn to the men or to the women or to those who had all of the excess that they may or may not have brought with them. He turns to this little boy, this boy who had gone out likely to tend to the, the chores of the family. He was minding his own business. We, we, not much is given. We don't know much about this boy, but if you know culture and context, you have a pretty good understanding of what the life of a boy his age would have been like, what it would have consisted of. Look no further than David. He was a shepherd in his father's herd. He would go out and one of many boys, the youngest in fact, David was responsible for daily chores, for keeping the sheep. We don't know what this boy's job was, but we do know what a boy his age and in his context and community would be like. So the fact that he's there, it also tells us that he is a boy of little means. He has barley crackers and two small pickled fish, no larger than that of a sardine. And Andrew points to the obvious in front of everyone. Well, this boy here has got five crackers and two pickled fish. When I was adopted, I was adopted into a Swedish family, like my great-grandmother came straight off the boat. That first year of Christmas, I ate lutefisk. That was a pickled fish. It was also the last year that I ate lutefisk. It's, it tastes worse than it smells, and it smells horrid. But they would use this, this brine and this pickling agent to, to preserve it. This is boy is sitting there. And can you just imagine what's going through his mind and he's gripping this basket with his belongings. These are his. They may be meager, but they're mine. And Andrew points out, even all the more in front of everyone, that it's not much. He says, what good is it for this large crowd? Verse 10, Jesus 
is going to change the posture of the people. Verse 10, Jesus says, tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Well, if you know anything about coming back to a festival like this, they would come with their families. Many scholars, but most would agree. Many scholars argue, but most would agree that there's somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people collectively at the base of this mountain. And as they're all standing around, murmuring, talking, arguing, confused, Jesus changes the posture of the people. Many of us come to Jesus looking for a miracle, but we refuse to change our posture. We want more peace in our lives, but we refuse to change the posture of our schedules. We refuse to create margin in moments of our lives. We, we continue to pile on all the more to what we've got. We, we want the miracle of peace. We want the miracle of, uh, we want God to miraculously deliver us financially, yet we refuse to change the posture of our priorities, of how we spend our money. And we cry out to God, Lord, save me from this financial burden. Save me from this debt. But we refuse to change our posture. Many of us come to Jesus and we want to be healed miraculously from a physical ailment, but we refuse to change our posture. We don't slow down. We don't take the necessary rest that we need. We don't go to the doctor. We don't take the medicine that God has given us through science. We, we, we want a miracle, but we won't change our posture. And in order for Jesus to work in this moment, to do the miraculous, he chooses to be Begin by changing the posture of the people. Where in your life today are you missing out on a miracle because you refuse to change the posture of your heart? You refuse to change the posture of your life. You refuse to change the posture of your priorities. Jesus begins this miracle by changing the posture of the people. Verse 11 says, Then Jesus took the loaves. And he gave thanks to God, and he distributed them to the people. And after he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. He blessed this food. It seems very familiar to us, and it should. It's what Jesus did in the Last Supper. He took it, and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to those that he was responsible for. And here, Jesus took it. And he thanked God for it, and he blessed it, and he gave generously to those that were in attendance. This is a miracle. It doesn't say how it happened. It just says that Jesus made it happen, and Jesus took the loaves, and he gave thanks to God, and he distributed to them, to the people. And afterward, he did the same thing with the fish. And it says that they all ate as much as they wanted. But check this out. He didn't stop there. Verse 12 tells us even more. John gives us even more insight into this miracle. After everyone was full... Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. After the people were full. Isn't it amazing how Jesus can make much of our nothing? To the point where we are full. This is also a social responsibility. When people would come as a guest, it was... The responsibility of the host to care for their physical needs, to, to take care of them, make sure that they had plenty to eat, make sure they had plenty to drink. Jesus was not just doing the miraculous, he was also in the details. 
That is so important for you and I to understand and adopt that Jesus is in the details. Jesus cared even socially about how it would be received for them. Verse 13, so they picked up, the disciples picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. There's a lot of speculation as to why 12 baskets. Why 12 baskets full of scraps? Could it be because each one of the disciples was responsible to go around with the basket and there was enough left over for them? Many argue that it was also a direct correlation to Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and that this was God's way of saying, I will take care and provide for my people. In any case, what's crucial is that we understand that God can make much of little, that God can do a lot with a little. When the people saw him, Verse 14, do this miraculous sign. They exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. In Deuteronomy, Moses will promise the people of Israel a prophet to come. He'll promise a prophet to come and to to care for the people, to share with the people, to lead the people. And knowing the words of their prophets... What we also have to understand is that this was a desperate people. You'll pick up on that in verse 15. This was a desperate people who understood the gravity of the situation. What was the gravity of the situation? Well, they had been yearning for, longing for, looking for, desiring to hear from God. God's voice had fallen silent on the people for 400 years. There were no prophets. There were no words from God during that time frame. What did they do for that 400-year period of time? They went through the religious motions. They went through the religious rituals. They went about their business as always. And here now in front of them was a voice that had been promised to them that they were desperate for, that they were longing for. Man, do you long to hear from God? Are you desperate to hear his voice? Do you anticipate it? Do you wait for it? Do you look for it? These people, they recognized that something was different and they exclaimed, surely he's the prophet that we've been expecting in verse 15. Now you see their desperation come full circle. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Why? Ask yourself, why, why would John include in here? Why is it important that these people were ready to take Jesus by force and make him king? Well, it comes back to priorities. They were all about the possibilities and not the person. Their community as they knew it wasn't what they had hoped for or had been promised. It was under Roman rule and reign after all. And they were looking for someone, something to come and to reestablish their community as a sovereign nation. They were tired of living under the rule and the reign and the ridicule and the rules of Rome at that time. They were desperate for their their land to be restored. And here's this miracle worker. Here's this man who has done the unfathomable, the unthinkable, the unbelievable, the improbable. If anyone could restore our, 
our community to us. Surely he could. And so they were going to, they were going after Jesus, not because of who he was, but what they believed he could do. Jesus wanted no part in that. Here's a man that they were about to make king who was the king of kings. Not this side of heaven, but of the heavenlies. It wasn't because Jesus didn't know his place as king or that he wasn't ready to take his place as the rightful king. He got away because he knew that the people were there with the wrong priorities. And I wonder this morning about our priorities. I wonder this morning why we're gathered at the base of the mountain. I wonder this morning, as we were a part of the crowd, what conversations we're having in the crowd. I wonder this morning, as Jesus begins to speak, what we're listening for. I wonder this morning when we realize that there are needs all around us and we have an opportunity, much like this this boy who had a basket and some bread. How many of us, when called out by God to give generously and selflessly and obediently out of what we have, look at what we have, and we're embarrassed by it, and we think to ourselves, maybe even articulate it with our words, how could God use such meager means for any good? I wonder how many of us are tired from the long day's journey of everything that we've poured out and we hold on so tightly to what we have that we refuse to give it up for anyone else. I wonder how many of us are embarrassed to even begin to make our way to the front of the line. I wonder how many of us are are scared to have someone in leadership around us approach us and ask us what we have to offer. But what would happen? What would happen if, like Philip who relied on his self-dependence, Jesus asked him, Philip, where can we find enough food to buy for all these people? He began to look with self-dependence on the things that he was aware of, on the things that he knew, on the things that he had experienced. What would happen if we moved away from self-dependency and in obedience stepped out into soul sufficiency? What if we said, what I have is all I have and all I have is all I got. I give it all to you. I, I don't know what you're going to do with it, God, but I'm going to give it to you. I trust you. Would God do the miraculous through you, in you, by you, around you? Or are you too busy clinging, clinging to what little you have, afraid to let go? This morning, there are two miracles that we need to understand that took place in John chapter 6. The first is the obvious, feeding 20 to 30,000 people with five barley crackers and two pickled fish? Come on, that's radical. But the first miracle happens when this boy who is insignificant in that culture and context and with so little to offer steps forward away from self-dependency and into soul sufficiency. While the people had changed their physical posture, this boy had changed his personal preferences and his personal posture. This morning, 
if you were to do an honest inventory of your life, what are you holding on to so tightly that even if God wanted to move through you, he couldn't because you won't let go? Where are you in the course of your life relying on your own experiences, your own resources, your own education, your own expectations, instead of wholly surrendering to Jesus? And in the same vein, let me ask you this. What would happen? What could happen? If you relinquished your right to those rights and in obedience stepped out and said, God, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. What would he do in you and through you and by you and around you? What would he do? What, what, what could he do? What would he do with what meager offerings you have to bring? You won't know unless you let go. You won't know unless you let go. And I will never, ever, ever, ever forget the feeling that came over me when as a 16-year-old boy, Pastor Scott Reevely of Westland Baptist Church said, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because suffering develops perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope will not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. And he said, Andy, if you would give your life to God, I believe that he will use you to change not only your life, but others around you. I had no idea in that moment what that would have ever looked like. And just Sunday, a week ago, Father's Day, as I sat alone, in my vehicle, reflecting and thanking my adopted dad for giving me a second chance. I reminisced with him about where I was and where I am today. None of that would have been possible if I would have held on tightly to my own treasures. But because I let go and I let God have what little I had to use, he used it and he's using it today. And it is a conscious decision that I daily make. I have to make myself available. I have to change the posture of my preferences. I have to change sometimes the posture of, of my physical space. I have to change the posture of my priorities. And as I do, as I willingly let go of all of my own selfish expectations, holding on tightly to what I've done, and I allow God to change the posture of me, he never fails. He uses it to do greater things than I would have ever imagined and all for his glory. So what about you? For those of you watching on our online community, we've got several of our staff members in the room today as we're getting ready to, to relaunch. And so I'm asking each one of you, staff members and friends this morning, what are you holding on to? What are you not letting go of that God wants to use to the unimaginable, to do the, the unthinkable, the unfathomable? And to our online community, I ask you, where are you living in self-dependence? Where do you need to move from self-dependency and into soul-sufficiency of Christ? Where do you need to let go this morning and say, God, it's not much, but all that I am and all that I have, I offer to you. And when you do that, I know, like I know, like I know, that God will do a miracle. And how do I know that? 
Because the Bible says that the God of yesterday is the same God today and the God of tomorrow. And he cares and he'll move and he'll do more than you could ever imagine. But it begins with you changing the posture of your hearts, changing the posture of your priorities, changing the posture of your desires, stepping away from self-dependency and into self-sufficiency and surrendering all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. Make that your prayer this morning. Make that your desire. Make that your point of action. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for this opportunity to evaluate and to reflect and to see this miracle, this amazing miracle, how you fed tens of thousands of people with a simple boy's barley crackers and fish. God, I pray that in the same way you would feed our souls today. Right now in this moment, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict each and every one of us, beginning with me, of the things that we're holding on tightly to out of self-dependence. And then I pray that we would have the strength to confess with our mouths and relinquish our rights out of obedience and in total surrender to you. And God, as we give up these things that we've been holding on to, I pray that you would do the miraculous through us. And all for your glory, Jesus.